0: Hello and welcome to the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell-Shaw. Last episode, we began our discussion with Philip Taylor about his transition from a high-level exec at IBM to starting work at the Southeast Ambulance Service. In this episode, we go on to discuss what Philip found rewarding about his new line of work and then also the challenges tied up with it and starting again at the bottom mid-career. We also talk about the challenges of COVID and finish with where he enjoys cycling in London. Do enjoy. Philip, we discussed that when perhaps buying something, being overly excited might not be a great sign. However, when it comes to your work and career, I think being excited by what you do is incredibly important. So you move to the Southeast Ambulance Service and became an emergency care support worker, which has the catchy acronym of ECSW. Tell us about starting as an emergency care support worker.
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, it's a job title that's meaningless and nobody knows what it means. And I have it written in my epaulettes on my uniform and you know, I had one person stopped me and yeah, yeah, what's well, that one that one actually stopped to, so they could read it, you know, cause it's, <laughs> uh, it's anyway. So ECSW is the sort of entry level, um, position for somebody working in the frontline emergency ambulance service. So I joined the Southeast coast ambulance service. We provide the ambulance service for Surrey, Sussex and Kent. Um, I was given a four week, four weeks of clinical training, followed by four weeks of driving training. And then I was out on the road. So, you know, when I started, I didn't really know that much about the job. I didn't know what it entailed. I assumed it would be about driving, but I didn't know how much medical side of things I would do. But what I do is I I always work with somebody more senior than me and, we share the work. And that's the fascinating thing is that I'll be, I mean, my crewmate is a qualified paramedic. He's been in the service for 10 years. But when we go and see a patient, you know, and let me, you know, in an average shift, 12 hour shift, we'll see six patients. So for three of those, I will be the person who, in the language, I attend that patient. So I'll go in. I'll have the conversation. I'll try and work out what's going on. Um, my crewmate will help with taking observations and, and you know, if necessary, you know, taking an ECG or, or whatever. But it's my job to lead that discussion, work out what we're going to do, and obviously, it's it's there's a lot of teamwork, and we'll perhaps come back to that because um, for me, that's really important. Mm. But you know, I'm given that responsibility. Now, yeah. when I get stuck, which I do frequently yeah. <laughs> because I've, you know, I've had little, little training and, and not much medical experience, I've been doing this job now for 16 months, you know, he will help, and, you know, but he'll also push me really hard. Mm-hmm. So there have been, in the last few weeks, there have been a couple of occasions where I said, well, what do you think? He said, you're patient. <laughs> <laughs> now, what do I do? <laughs> yeah, I know that he's not going to let me do anything would would cause any harm or or whatever but he's he's pushing me to say well you know you've 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 been out with me for a good while now you know how i think so what do you think is going on and the flip side being that when you go to somebody who's really sick and needs the experience and the skill in a hurry he will just say i'm dealing with this you know yeah so philip i want you to do this, this 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 and this and my skill is being able to do all of those things and help him Mm -hmm. and and get that done in a quick and efficient manner yeah so the ecsw role it's an entry role Mm. it positions me then to get on courses to to move up the ladder which is is where i'm now going but it's also somebody that does provide that support um you you know for 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 more senior people
0: it sounds like a role I would almost be surprised you find rewarding and this speaks more about me like there's a lot of driving involved to me that would be really oh I I don't like spending lots of time behind the wheel uh, particularly not late at night so what is it that for you makes this rewarding and particularly compared to what you were doing before because that was part of a team as well with IBM presumably there was was only with other people so
1: what was it that made this so different? I'm, I'm glad that you've come back to that Luke because my experience in the corporate world is that there's an awful lot of talk about teamwork Mm -hmm. and certainly in the sales side of things actually quite rare quite it was quite rarely demonstrated Mm -hmm. i I think it's very difficult when when you have a bunch of people who are all on commission and all fighting for an amount of a commission pot you know, they're they're enemies almost. Yes, they all work in the same office. You talk about, oh, we belong to this team. Yeah. But my uh, maybe my narrow perspective was that I I never really saw real teamwork. I know it existed, had to in in other parts of the company, perhaps. Whereas now, um, the job I do, as I say, there's always two of us in an ambulance. It's always me and a senior. Um, You can only do the job if you work as a team.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I mean, uh, one of my favorite examples of, of teamwork um, in the current job was I had a, went to see a patient, a chap in his mid 70s, who was reasonably wobbly on his feet. So he had a stair lift, you know, one of these that has a rail up the stairs and the seat that goes down the track. Well, to cut a long story short, he'd fallen from the top of the stairs, head first down the stairs. He'd landed on the first landing of the stairs and wedged his head under the rail of the stair lift. Ooh. Um, Now, that's not something that you and a crewmate can deal with. You know, he was absolutely wedged stuck. So I made a radio call and I asked for help. Four fire crews turned up. So I had four fire engines outside this house. Okay. and you know, they unscrewed the unscrewed the stair lift and physically lifted the whole thing up so that we could then get this chap out and deal with him. Now, chap himself was absolutely fine, remarkably, after all of that. And we left him at home you know, with a cup of tea. <laughs> uh, but the teamwork of two different services coming together with a sole aim, and the sole aim was to make a difference to that individual. Mm. Um, and... If he'd been there for a long time, that would have been very detrimental to him, Mm. to his health. But by working as a team, you know, lots of, lots of discussion toing and froing. What can we do? You know, at one point they wanted to saw the thing in half, but I said, not sure I want a a big blade next to his head, you know, we'll unscrew it then. Mm. That also worked. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, and, and day to day, you know, working with a crewmate and standing at the top of stairs, scratching your head, thinking how on earth are we going to get this lady out you know down this little tiny staircase that we're going to have to carry her down you know but it's it's to and fro and despite the fact that i'm the most junior and you know with the least experience my views and opinions are sought and listened to Mm. as part of the ongoing you know if it's a medical thing where it's well i know what this i know medically what i've got to do then i'm not even going to you know it's not up to me i don't Mm. have the knowledge but when it's something like, how do we get somebody out? What's the best route in? Are we going to use the carry chair or the truck? You know, all these things that we work through. Problem very, solving. very much done as a team. Yes, it is. Yeah, in a very physical, spatial way. It's, you know, one of the things that surprised me actually was, because I thought I'd come in as the most junior and just be told what to do. And right. then to find somebody with 10 years experience, say, well, what do, what do you think? What are going to do now? <laughs> Whoa. You know you're asking me, like, Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <clears throat> I'm quite interested that you're saying you, you went in as the most junior, And this is coming from a background where you were pretty senior at IBM. How difficult was it to adjust to this difference in status if you would use that term? Was that perceived by others? Was that perceived by you? It must have been quite a big
1: change, though. So, it's a massive change. Um, you know, to go back to the beginning that that was that was really interesting. I think mm. there are quite a lot of things that were different. Um, I think I, I mean, just the types of people that I now work with is is incredibly broad. Um, you know, I've gone from working in an environment where probably everybody, you know, with one or two exceptions, everybody was a graduate Mm. um, at IBM, Uh, you know, all, you know, with aspirations that in many ways were based around money and and possessions and the big house and the car, all those things we've talked about. Whereas now, you know, the, so this made me chuckle when I went for my interviews for this job, they Mm. said, uh, bring, bring your, um, your certificates along. Yeah. So I took my certificates, you know, my O levels, my A levels, my degree, my, you know, one or two things I've got out, you know, after, after degree. Yeah. Um, and, and they dutifully photocopied them all and sent them off to HR. And then when I looked at my HR record after I joined and got my job, qualifications, math GCSE, <laughs> because, <laughs> because that was the requirement of the job. Right that is the only thing that you had to have to get this job was, Mm. was maths. Um, So necessarily it's a, you know, very, a very different mix of people. A paramedic Mm. is a, is a degree qualification and that's what I aspire to. And hopefully we'll get there in the next, within the next five years. But there are people that I would otherwise not really have come across and certainly not worked with. And that's been fascinating. You know, people with very broad experience of, of, you know different different aspects of life has certainly broadened my perspective in, in ways that I couldn't have couldn't have imagined
0: even so it sounds like a difficult transition uh, well actually, what what's striking me right now is almost how easily you, you made that transition uh, to site of a, a small example from my own life it's not a direct sort of parallel but i remember 17 years old you know this fit young runner cyclist went to my first swimming session in 10 years to make the uh, the analogy you know I had all the qualifications I probably had a great you know fitness and vo2 max and you know probably the fittest person in the pool I got in and I didn't know a thing I didn't know how to even move my arms I was useless yeah and well that was certainly quite a humbling experience it seems like you've taken this very much in your stride and I'm just interested in was there a lot of thinking mental preparation before you started okay well this is just gonna be a t- completely different ball game i'm now just gonna be phil or philip i know you don't like phil <laughs> no one knows or cares about the fact that i've once you know had a high-flying job because that's just totally irrelevant it was was that did you have to go through that process or was it a rude awakening
1: i don't know about rude awakening i mean it certainly had to go through some of the process and and before i even applied i i went and had a beer with a friend of my daughter's who's a paramedic with london ambulance service Mm -hmm. to pick his brain about what the job was about and Mm. one of the questions i asked him was i said you know i know that they cannot legally discriminate on age but do they really want somebody you know my age i think i was 52 when i applied um surely they want you know kids out of school that they're gonna get 30, 40 years service out of? And he said, absolutely not. He said, yes, of course they want young people, but they also want people with life experience. And, you know, the way that I've seen that manifest itself was there was a chap on my training course who was painfully shy, you know, was, intellectually was there. He, he, he got the, the, the clinical stuff, but what yep. he couldn't deal with was working with a patient. He didn't know where to begin. He couldn't have the conversation.
0: Right. Just the starting with a hello and how are you doing?
1: Yeah, but but just almost tongue tied by that. Right. And, you know, the number of times that I've sat in the back of an ambulance on the way to hospital holding the hand of a 93 year old lady who's scared out of her wits because she's going to hospital, you know, this chap I'm thinking of would probably thought, oh, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to touch her, you know yeah whereas this was just an old lady you needed a bit of reassurance so there's a bit of life experience that that came into it i think i i think a lot of people couldn't understand why i'd given up a high-paid job um you know sitting behind a desk for something where you're out in the community often getting wet um sometimes getting shouted at you know going into very very different environments you know we we go into some pretty horrible places from time to time and you know i've had to learn how to deal with that so i think in terms of preparation i didn't really know what i was getting into um i took it you know i studied hard during the clinical course um Mm. because i wanted to do as well as i could and i wanted to learn as much as i could yeah um and i keep that going i i try to you know, constant conversations about, well, what, why did you do that? Why didn't we do this? Did you think of that? Um, and you know, my crewmate now, now that I've got on, I'm on the course now starting in September to get to the next level, um, within the service. Mm. So he now, he starts drilling me. We, you know, we'll finish a patient. You say, right, what did you think of that? And I'll say, well, I think we did. And he said, yeah, but why didn't you do that? Well, because, yeah. You know, and then you have, so it's, constant learning constant reflection constant um encouragement also
0: yeah and that suggests to me that there's definitely a maturity and mindset there that you you don't necessarily have to be you know mid-career to have that but it certainly say something if i was 20 and i joined i probably would have wanted to do the least amount of work possible to get by and get through so i think that's that's interesting itself the the approach that you you bring so you're saying the teamwork is a very rewarding aspect of it. What else gives you that life satisfaction from this very different career? I think um,
1: probably two things. I think the first one is that I make a difference every day. I make a difference sometimes in a very big way when you save somebody's life. More often in a very small way where you know you go to the old lady who's fallen over and can't get up. Um, and more often than not, you get them up, check them over, leave them in an armchair. But sometimes they've broken their hip or their leg or their arm or something, and you have to deal with it. But you make a difference. Um, if you weren't there, you know they 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 wouldn't they they wouldn't be in a good place. So there's the satisfaction of making a real difference to individuals. Now compare that to IBM. IBM does a, a huge amount of good in the world. Um, but it's very invisible, hmm. you know, if, if IBM, you know, has some wonderful software that can help with, you know, artificial intelligence that helps with understanding cancer. And, you know, you and I've talked about that in the past about some of, some of the software that, that they have that makes medical journal papers available to every doctor by, you know almost type in the symptoms and get back a list of well these are the journals you need to read type answers yeah you know you can see how that can be really powerful and really helpful but actually quite invisible and for me somehow because most of what i was doing was working with banks making them more efficient you know so so that was actually i don't think i want to do this anymore you know so Whereas now it's, you know, if I can make a difference to three or four or five or six people in a shift, then that's real tangible, you know, I've done something here. So that's the first piece. The second piece is that I think teamwork is part of it, but actually family, it's a real family and it's described by many people as a family. And that was demonstrated so eloquently with my friend Pete because he died from COVID um, in the hospital that he worked in. And on the day of his funeral, hundreds of colleagues from the ambulance service went to the ambulance station, lined the road in the pouring rain, and the funeral cortege with police escort, with fire service turned up, you know, because he was hugely loved and and known. But it was just an outpouring of love. You know, and I think everybody there would would describe it that way. You know, we are a big green family, and you, you, you know, I think that the police would say they're a you know they're a blue family, and the fires. You know, it, we it, it's 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 something bigger that you belong to. Yeah. That when you work for a corporation, you would never describe it that way.
0: Mm.
1: You know, or or if somebody does describe it that way, you think, yeah, yeah, you've just read a book about you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So how to build teamwork and culture.
1: Yeah. And you know, when, when you see a patient and it's a difficult situation and you know, you can imagine some of the things that, that we have to deal with day to day, there's incredible support there from colleagues, from management from and all sorts from just, just to help. It really is a family. And, and, you know, when you get stuck, you turn to the family and you know there is never i've never had anybody who's i'll just pull your socks up get on with it you know so yeah let's have a coffee let's talk about it
0: right it seems like there's a there's two things here one that very direct you can see the causality of your actions your actions can lead to a direct change in someone else's life that is in front of your eyes and you can see and you can know that you've made a difference rather than pushing for an incremental change in the cogs of global commerce and finance and it also sounds like the because the goals are very different it sounds like to a lot of the corporate world your everyone's attitude is is, is less competitive it might be a, a cliche to say you're working towards you know a more idealistic goal you know helping other people in in a very it is in a hands-on way, and I think that probably does make a difference. And it changes the incentive structure, which I wonder to the extent that builds this family environment because I guess you know, family relations in, in our own families, they're not built around trying to make money. They're trying to you know, bring out the best in each person. And I suppose that sounds like the kind of culture that
1: you're now part of. And I think it's the difference between being part of a service Versus being part of a corporation.
0: Mm. Isn't that an
1: interesting word to use? Service. Yeah. a Service to help other people. And, and, you know, if you but if you look at the organization I work for is the Southeast Coast Ambulance Service. You know, our colleagues opposite are the fire service, fire and rescue service. And, you know, it's something that I'd never experienced before. Um, you know, when, uh, you know, I, my, my parents are both teachers, I was brought up around education, um, you know, that's a different environment. Um, the corporate world is, is itself, you know, and so that's one of the biggest surprises and, and you know, biggest changes for me was uh, almost a feel of belonging more, you know, people will often say, I'm proud to be an IBMer, you know, and IBMer was the phrase used for somebody working for the company, you know, and in some ways I was, But actually, in a lot of ways, I wasn't. And whereas now, you know, am I proud to belong to the ambulance service? Yes, I am.
0: You've mentioned Pete and him passing away from COVID. And that really is a very powerful and clear indication of the unusual, in some senses, responsibilities and risks that, you take on as, as part of um, being in the, the medical profession and I, other doctors and, and nurses, uh, everyone involved, you know, particularly at this time of COVID, are at increased risk. And I was wondering if you could give us a flavor of what it has been like for you, being very much on the front line, you're visiting people's homes with suspected COVID symptoms. You have have an insight into what, for me, living in Bristol, I've not really experienced at all. I've kind of been very lucky to live in, you know, in my house. I go running on the, the downs and the park nearby. Of course, I haven't been going out to cafes and stuff. I feel I've been very isolated. I haven't visited a hospital, thank goodness. So, what's this time
1: been like for you? It's been um, it's been fascinating. It's been fascinating in many ways in in how society deals with something that turns it upside down. Um, it's been a time of almost constant change. So, you know, there's been a lot of discussion that you know you see in the press about uh, personal protective equipment or PPE being available. Um, so I think I've now been formally tested for five different masks, you know, so, the the surgical masks the normal you know elastic ear ones that's what we we wear those into every patient now mm, mm. but you know it was only 3 months ago when you know oh well don't wear one of those unless you think they might have something because you you know well we, we don't want to waste them right very different advice huge and it changes every week <laughs> you know but the the masks i've been fit so if we go in where you think It's what they call an aerosol generating procedure. So, if you're working with a patient who might breathe droplets out for whatever reason, and you you know you have to have a mask where nothing gets through, and you only know that if you've gone through a process of being fit tested for it. The trouble is that you get fit tested for one, and then the service runs out of those and can't get any more. So they get a different type. So you have to go. So it's this ongoing process of making sure that we have what we need. Um, to be safe. And, you know, the, the cleaning process, the, every single piece of equipment you use with every patient is now completely cleaned before you go on to the next one. So a change in process. and mm. But I think more importantly, I think there's been a change in attitude among patients and the number of patients I've been to in the last three or four months who really, really need to be in hospital um, nothing to do with COVID, mm. but will not go. And the, the, the mm. fear of going to hospital and actually uninformed because the way the hospitals are working and yes, they you know they've had to go through immense change and, and you know the number of times I've been into our local hospitals, okay, so where's A and E today? You know? <laughs> hey, <laughs> um, wow. because well because they what they in the early days they made the biggest part of A and E COVID only and if you were non covid and showing no symptoms you went to a little side room and then uh, a month ago they switched it around so they now have two covid beds because they're not seeing anybody and 12 beds for everybody else but but going to people who we'd say look you really need to go to hospital well i'm not, I'm not going i'm I'm too frightened you know and we'd sit and have a discussion and sometimes we could explain that they would be as safe as they possibly could be if we took them into that area but but that's been really interesting and you know at the height of covid you know when when we were up at the you know the the peaks yeah actually the ambulance service was relatively quiet how come well because a lot of people and i think lots of reasons um people the pubs were shut So people weren't out fighting. Um, People weren't driving anywhere. So there were fewer accidents. People weren't doing that much. You know, they weren't playing sports, you know, so all of those sorts of things. I think people were not calling us who should have been. And it was probably halfway through lockdown that the government started saying to people, actually, if you need help, you need to call for it. You know, we're, we're all still here.
0: Yeah.
1: Don't hide away. Don't hide. Don't. Think oh well I'll just wait um, you know I'm reading more and more in the press now about people you know who who, who are going to be more ill because they haven't sought help um, during COVID than than they should be mm. um, so it, it, as I say it, it's it's more been a process of managing and coping with change and constant change about well this is what we do in this situation this is the equipment we use this is how we do it. Um, you know, which I think has been really interesting having to stay on top of all of that. Um, uh, You know, and then, you know, just having to cope with the practicalities of it. You know, if you go to somebody who's had cardiac arrest and you're delivering CPR in a full body suit (laughs) with a mask on and goggles and multiple pairs of gloves, just coping with that. Um, And, you know, it's incredibly uncomfortable. And Mm -hmm. if you've got, you know, that sort of situation. And the last one I did, there were six of us in a tiny little flat, all, all working hard and we were utterly drained at the end of it, you know, right. just physically, physically drained. Um, so, you, you know, as I say, it's, it's been really interesting how the cycles have gone and, you know, we're pretty much back to normal, normal levels of work. Now I'm seeing very, very few people with respiratory problems.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, very few with with covid symptoms um, and much more back to the back to the things that we were seeing before
0: yeah did you feel like you were worried not only for your own health but you know you're you're living with liz your your wife one of your daughters is at home
1: Mm.
0: was that a difficult thing to have that responsibility and thinking well i'm putting myself at a high risk this could also um, impact people that i love
1: Yeah, so it's something that we've talked about. Um, It's something where uh, I've changed the way I work, um, the actual pattern of work. So, you know, when I get home from work now, I come in through the back door, not the front. Mm, I strip off, everything goes into a bag, um, and I go straight in the shower. You know, which didn't used to happen. Uh, You know, it it would if I if I'd had, you know, if I if I'd worked with a patient which had been messy or dirty or whatever then yes i would but you know that that never happened before whereas now it's every single shift everything comes off um we've been very careful about hand washing and about not visiting elderly parents and things you know over this period because you know i have to be at higher risk than many other people because i've worked all the way through it you know i'm i'm very interested that having had an antibody test a week ago to find that i i'm negative i've not had covid mm-hmm. so i'm obviously doing something right because i've very definitely had patients with it and been exposed to it and i'm in hospital every day so it, it, it's been there but the the processes and the practices that we follow um are effective
0: one other question moving away from covid now but onto the nature of your job that i'm Intrigued about is how do you cope with the night shift particularly when you're driving around? You know for me when I get to 11 o'clock at night That is definitely my head should hit the pillow and certainly nothing useful gets done after like 1030 So on a practical note, how do you actually get through the night shifts?
1: Um, it's interesting because that was probably the thing I was most worried about when I moved when I changed jobs um, I'd never worked shifts um, the, the prospect of 12 hour shifts as well, you know, that, that's a long time to be at work. Yeah. And it's only when you actually get there and you see how it works and you realize that you actually, you know, quotes only see six patients in a shift. You know, I think, I think the busiest shift I've ever done, I saw 10 patients. Um, okay. and the, the, uh, I, I think the other end of the scale, I think I saw two, you know, mm. um, so so the practicality of it is different from the idea. And I guess also I'd come from a job where I was in front of a computer all day, every day in an office, um, not even with free coffee. <laughs> um, and, you know, you, you can't do that for 12 hours at a stretch. Whereas this is so varied, you know, some of it, yes, you're driving, you, you know, uh, so getting two patients, but then you can spend an hour in a patient's house trying to work out what's going on, what the best you know, sometimes we'll give treatment mm. in the house and then see, well, has that made a difference? Yeah. Okay. So now let's think about what we're going to do. Or, you know, to the previous example, what help do I need to get this person out from under the stair rail? You know? And then you may take them to hospital. And then there's the process of handing over in hospital. So it, it's a job where you've got different things going on at different points. So you're not sitting in front of a screen, there's much more movement, it's much more active, there's occasional lifting, there's, you know, lots of equipment to to move about and, and you know, understand and sort out and, and work on. So that's one piece of it. Mm. Does it make it less sedentary than your IBM work?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There were, I was thinking, yeah. sitting down in an ambulance, but no, you're moving around more than you would when you're at your desk.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, obviously there is time sitting down when, when you're driving, mm. but then, you know, when you get to the patient and, you know, they're upstairs and you're up and down and up and down getting different bits of kit or, or mm. whatever. Um, mm. And as I say, sometimes we have to carry people downstairs or, you know, mm. I never did that at IBM, <laughs> funnily enough. Um, surprising. So, so, yes, there's a, is, is a wide variety. And night shifts was, was the other thing that really worried me. Because I travelled a lot with IBM, I, I went to the US a lot, um, and I knew that when I flew to the US, I would always try and stay up till nine-ish local time before I went to bed. And I knew that around eight o'clock, I'd hit a wall—you know, sort of one, two o'clock in the morning UK time. And I thought, well, that's that's what night shifts are going to be like. And surprisingly to me, it's not. I I've managed to find a routine um, where I you know, get a couple of hours sleep in the afternoon before my first night shift. That gets me through. Um, and then, you know, I sleep for seven hours when I get home from seven o'clock or something to two in the afternoon. And it, I just manage it. I, I'm, I don't really know how or why, but right. I don't get to, as you say, you know, 11 o'clock and think, right, I need to sleep now. Um, and I think partly it was when I, when I first started, I think there was so much adrenaline of you know just trying to cope with the job and do everything i needed to without tripping over my own feet (laughs) um that now i'm a year and a half in i'm you know i i know what's coming and how to deal with it but i've got i've got the pattern in place yeah which seems to work and is there something that you do to
0: unwind from
1: from these shifts well uh i try to cycle as much as i can um Mm -hmm. I do cycle to and from work and I mean, that's not very far, but it's 10 minutes uphill to get home. Um, And Liz has noticed that uh, a a difference when I cycle compared to when I drive Um, that actually just having that, as you well know, uh, just a little bit of exercise can make a huge difference.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I uh, said it before but anyone who knows me they know when I haven't done any exercise because I'm this grumpy old guy um it <laughs> totally changes my character I'll come quite clean um don't don't come near me if I haven't been for a run Philip it's been fascinating talking to you about the the ins and outs of your, your time at IBM moving to the ambient service the big transition that that was Was there a piece of advice that you were given or a piece of advice that you'd like to give that you feel is very important for anyone who's considering, you know, really quite a large change in their career or into a jump into the
1: unknown of some sort? I think we've touched on it through this discussion. I think it's find what makes your heart sing. I didn't know I was going to find that. I... It was interesting. I was actually talking to a psychotherapist friend about what I'm now doing and had a, a similar conversation to this. And she said, you know, you're so lucky that you found this. And she yeah. didn't use the phrase that makes your heart sing. and But it does. And I think when I started it, I didn't know it would. It was a leap into the unknown. It was something that I had a suspicion was going to be more me than than you know the corporate job um i, I do have some regrets that i didn't do it earlier uh, but you know i i just need to move on from that um i uh, this is a job you know like any any role of any part of life there are bits that don't work so well or bits that are frustrating or boring or tedious but the end of the day i'm doing something that makes a difference and it's the right place for me to be
0: thank you philip Mm. to finish this is my own little personal bit of uh self-improvement and i'm ask each of my guests three questions so i can basically leech ideas um off the people i talk (laughs) to and you are, are no different I'm firstly, you know, always interested in sort of where, where has been meaningful or interesting in places that I might want to visit or other people listening might want to visit. So where has a place been that either you've enjoyed or has been a very
1: significant or special place to you? There, there are two places that, that spring to mind when you ask that question. The first one is Box Hill, mm-hmm. which is in Surrey, local beauty spots. It's my normal cycle route. I I have a 20 mile route that I I go on and I cycle up Box Hill and it was part of the Olympic road race route. So, you know, it's very well known. And on a a weekend, there are uh, hundreds of cyclists um, going up and down. So I love going up there. It's a lovely view um, and it's a nice ride. Um, The other place is the Albert Hall because I've played there many times um, with one of my orchestras and it is the most fabulous building to play in. Um, And we did a a concert for children, uh, school kids, Um, 4,000 of them from London schools, never been to a concert, even vaguely classical before and had no idea how to behave. And we walked out to a wall of screaming (laughs) (laughs) and it didn't stop for two hours of the concert. It was just wow. the most astonishing experience of unbridled response to what we were doing that you don't get when, you, when you're playing to adults, you know. How fantastic. So, yeah, so very, very different places. You know, one outdoors beautiful and another one just uh, 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 such a huge body experience that, that you know, I, I, I will always remember that feeling of walking out onto that stage.
0: That's incredible. And on the topic of music, what has been a favourite, the favourite piece of yours or one that is very special to you?
1: So uh, actually from the Albert Hall, um, from a very early visit to the proms when I was probably something like 15, um, Bruckner's Third Symphony. Um, hmm. Bruckner is not very well known generally. Um, he influenced Mahler. But what he does with harmonies, um, particularly in the brass, just goes right through you. It is astonishing. And so, you you know, I I mean, I love many different types of music, different genres, um, but it's Bruckner 3 is is for me.
0: Wow. Thank you. I'm going to listen to that now, and I'll put a (laughs) link to that in the description for the podcast as well so anyone who's interested can hear... The harmonies rippling through the brass. My final question,
1: Philip: Your favourite book? So again, I'm going to give you two um, because really I'm really pushing greedy. the boat out here. Aren't I you? know, the I know, pushing the, pushing the oh. boundaries. So, so there are two. One, and and I think this plays to a lot of what we've talked about. It's called "Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway" by Susan Jeffries, which is all about what we've talked about. It's about you, you know, whatever point you are at in life and whatever decision you're trying to make, don't be put off by the fear. I, I talked earlier about being, you know, 15 years ago, it was too frightening to think about leaving IBM mm. and stepping out into something that didn't have this you know, big pay packet. I think now with what I know now, what I feel now, where I am now, I would do it differently. But that's hindsight. But that's a very helpful book. I've, I've recommended it to a lot of people and they found it useful. Mm. So strongly, strongly recommend that one. And the second one is a little known book, but one I came across during a a course at IBM, and it's called Leadership and Self-Deception. It's called Getting Out of the Box. And it's about, you know, we're all in our own little box, our own little worlds, our own perspectives on life. And it's very easy to stay inside your own box and not understand what other people's boxes are or how you influence others or how you come across to others right and it's a it's just a little tiny book Mm -hmm. um but it's really interesting that liz knows when i've read it (laughs) Yeah, because if i go back to it and read it she sees the difference in me um of of how i've you know just adjusted something a little bit
0: I'm, I'm totally intrigued by that book, and I, I'm going go to go on Amazon and get it, but <laughs> can you just quickly tell us how you, I don't know, is it be a bit more self-aware or understand more about what other people think about you or how your actions are coming across? Is there a technique that you found has worked
1: best of all for you? I, I don't think a particular technique. I think it's just trying to bring kindness and compassion into everything i do and that that it's a little bit cliche but it's it is what i try to do particularly at work um i try to see the person in the patient you know they might be in the most filthy flat with clutter everywhere but they're still a human needing help and just try to be say kind and compassionate and, and you know, to bring everything I possibly can to help that individual. And then the same with its friends or its strangers on the tube. Try to be kind because you never know what people are going through. Um, and that's something that I do try and not always succeed, but it's a, it, is a, it is a goal.
0: I think that's a fantastic note to end this podcast on. Philip, it's been a real, real pleasure to chat with you. I think I will see not only the corporate world differently, but also the service, the ambulance service and the fire service um, and the other services in our society. Thank you for sharing your time and thoughts with me and everyone here on the Facing Up podcast.
1: Thank you, Luke. It's been a great pleasure talking
0: to you. And that was my conversation with Philip Taylor. I really hope that you enjoyed it. I've certainly got some things to take away from that. Firstly, it's never too late to make a change. I think it would have been quite easy for Philip to have thought 15 years ago that you know, this was my one chance and fast forward to 2018 and to feel that that ship had sailed. But it's never too late and that door is always open. But I was interested by how Philip talked about the responsibilities that he faced with his mortgage, his family, making this process a lot more complex, but really brought us on to the point of one's priorities in life really matter. If it matters to have a a house of a certain size or a certain type of schooling or a, a certain type of lifestyle that costs more, that has its benefits, but there are also sacrifices that need to be made. And I think then it's so important that each of us work out what is right and what we're willing to give up for what level of creature comfort, if you will. I've definitely also learned that being an emergency care support worker is much, much more than just driving around in an ambulance, as fun as that might be with blue flashing lights. A huge amount of problem solving and some pretty physical stuff in there as well. I think the thing that I'm gonna take away above all though is Philip's advice. Do something that will make your heart sing. That's it for this week. If you want to avoid the bagpipes in the outro, then I suggest you go to the link below and listen to Buchner's Third Symphony, something that might be a little more graceful on your ears. Until next week, take care and goodbye.